There's a story from some years ago about four priests who received a private audience with Pope St. Pius X. The first priest introduced himself by saying, Your Holiness, I am a scripture scholar specializing in the study of the Pauline epistles, and I teach in the seminary. May I have your blessing. And so the Holy Father blessed him. The second priest introduced himself, Your Holiness, I am a canon lawyer, and I head the judicial tribunal in my diocese. May I have your blessing. And so the Holy Father blessed him too. The third priest said, Your Holiness, I am the diocesan chancellor, handling all of my bishop's civil affairs. May I have your blessing. He also received a blessing from the Holy Father. Finally, the fourth priest stepped forward, and he said, Your Holiness, I have the care of souls, meaning that he was the pastor of a parish. Before he could ask for the Pope's blessing, the Pope knelt before this priest and said, May I have your blessing, most reverend Father. It's a delightful story, and it illustrates an important principle of the Church that she exists fundamentally for the cura and amara, meaning for the care of souls. People talk of the hierarchy of the church, meaning the relation of the lower to the higher clergy, from deacon to priest to bishop, and from bishop to cardinal to pope. Lines of power and authority exist in the church for good reason. No human institution, even one founded by Christ and led by the Holy Spirit, can function without a constitutive order that demarcates authority and responsibility. Yet because of this, we tend to think of the hierarchy of the church trending upwards to levels of greater importance. But the increasing power of the office held at a higher level is only a reflection of the fact that such power is ultimately necessary to aid the care of souls that is taking place at the lower level. The heart of the church is not in the Vatican, but in the hundreds of thousands of parish communities just like this one all over the world. The church is often called the world's oldest functioning monarchy. The office of the papacy is older than any currently existing head of state. But unlike most royal offices, the pope actually exercises genuine power, although often a lot less than some people think. Yet he takes office as the servus servorium dei, meaning the servant of the servants of God. The church was birthed in the midst of the Roman Empire. A survey of antiquity in that time shows that power was understood in such a way that the lower existed to serve the higher. In the Republic, Plato dreamed of a system of government where the rights and dignity of all persons were subordinated to the good of the state. In the Roman Empire, everything was structured under the system of patronage. Those of lesser rank owed fealty and obedience to those of higher rank. In exchange, they received privileges or protection from their superiors. The idea that individuals as such mattered at all was very foreign to the way people thought. People were important only in relation to the power that they had. If you were a family member or a client of a more powerful person, you mattered. If you were poor or a slave, well, then you didn't. Yet in the church, inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ, a new way of thinking and understanding 
the dignity of the human person was taking shape. Jesus reached out to the poor and to the sinners and to the outcast, recognizing that genuine human dignity lay beyond whatever sin or social circumstance excluded that person from respectable society. It's why Pope St. Gregory the Great, in the year 590, when he ascended to the chair of St. Peter, wrote his Rule of Pastoral Care. It's a fascinating book designed for those who have the cura and amarum, the care of souls. It's a detailed look at how ministers are to relate to people of all different types of backgrounds, different social classes, occupations, ages, psychological temperaments, and varying levels of Christian maturity. People who commit small sins and people who commit grave sins. This wasn't a book on how to get people to give more money to the church's collection or to motivate them to volunteer for the fall festival. It's about the pastoral love of souls. Even in that time, the church was concerned, as she still is, about the good of the individual person. Ultimately, that means being concerned with the destiny of their soul, with their salvation. I don't think you will find anything like St. Gregory's book in the history of world literature to that time. It signaled a shift that in Christianity, leadership is measured in service, in caring for the least rather than the most powerful. It's why we have a religious order called the Little Sisters of the Poor and not the Little Sisters of the Rich and Famous. As Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. It's an inversion of the world's values, where the weak have to adapt themselves to the whims of the more powerful. Instead, in Christianity, we learn that power itself exists for the purpose of serving the weakest. I mentioned before the Latin phrase cura and amarum, to have the care of souls. The Jesuits have a similar phrase, one that is the motto of many Jesuit colleges and schools, including nearby Georgetown. It's the cura personalis, meaning the care of the whole person. It's a way of living out the words of St. Paul, owe nothing to anyone except to love them, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The Christian faith does not ground itself in what is humanly respectable. Rather, she is grounded in the eternal reality of heaven and what it takes to get as many souls into that kingdom as possible. We see that Jesus teaches this kind of love in the Gospel reading. He says that if a person sins, first go and talk to them. Not take your revenge, not gossip behind their back, not find ways to cut them out of the picture. Rather, talk to them, and implicitly, Jesus is saying, accept their apology if they offer it, and move on. But maybe the person doesn't accept that one-to-one correction. So then Jesus says, back up your intervention with two or three witnesses. It's still meant to be low-key, but you are hoping that the person will respond to the greater numbers and be convinced of their wrongdoing. But Jesus says, if that still doesn't work, then inform the church, which in this context would mean the local Christian community. That would imply that the leaders of the church, such as the pastors and sacred ministers, are now to get involved. Again, still trying to admonish the person and get them to accept that they need to repent of their ways. In doing this, Jesus is demonstrating the principle of subsidiarity. 
Pope Pius IX first introduced that term into Catholic social teaching in his encyclical Quadragesimo Anno. He wrote, it is a fundamental principle of social philosophy, fixed and unchanging, that one should not withdraw from individuals and communities what they can accomplish by their own enterprise and industry. As Jesus taught, the principle of subsidiarity makes it preferable for a problem to be handled on a smaller scale, on a more personal level. This is not just a principle of decentralization or a testament to the power of local control. Possibly in some cases it would be faster and more efficient to to invoke the force of the church against a person who was sinning. But that is not the way of Jesus. Rather, subsidiarity, too, reflects the principle of what serves the cura personalis, the care of the whole person. The gradually escalating response to the sinner is designed to safeguard that person's dignity, to not embarrass them any more than necessary, to allow them to feel that they are not being bullied or coerced, because we know that it will often take all of a person's energy to admit their wrong and to turn from sin. So we don't want to burden them any more than necessary. We are concerned not just with how that person's sin might have hurt us or even hurt the church. Rather, we are fundamentally concerned for their good, for the cura animarum, for the cure of their soul. And that is why the final piece of advice for when the person will not listen even to the church should not shock us. Treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, that sounds harsh, but Jesus was known for his care for Gentiles and tax collectors. He reached out to them. He dined with them. He talked to them when no one else would, because ultimately he loved them. When someone has moved into this phase, yes, they stand in a different relation to the church. In need not so much of repentance from a specific sin, but but in need of, instead, fundamental conversion. They become objects of a kind of re-evangelization, what Pope John Paul the Great called the new evangelization. But such persons are not by that any less the objects of our love. The principle of love implies the principle of subsidiarity, because both are meant to recognize the dignity of the human person by respecting their individuality and their autonomy. The true care of souls means seeing others not as things to be used or manipulated for our own ends or problems to be managed for some greater good. Rather, persons themselves are the greatest good. They are the highest earthly realities, and they are therefore the objects of our love. Recall the maxim that true love is to will the good of the other person, which is not the same as making them happy, entertaining them, or keeping the peace. Love is hard work, often thankless hard work. It's something that John Paul the Great made the centerpiece of his philosophy of the human person in his work, Love and Responsibility. He said, A person is an entity of a sort to which the only proper and adequate way to relate is through love. The French writer Victor Hugo put it, To love another person is to see the face of God. Or as Jesus taught, That which you do for the least among you, you do unto me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.